Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM Plans to Capitalize on These Themes for Your Fixed Income Portfolio The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to another episode of The Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever, and I'm a member of AAM's investment team. Today, I'll be speaking with Marco Bravo, who will discuss the recent rise in treasury yields and other economic issues. I'll follow that discussion with my thoughts uh, on the U.S. re-entering the Paris Agreement and the decarbonization of the economy. So with that out of the way, welcome, Marco. Thanks, Pat. Uh, When we last spoke at the beginning of February, you stated that AAM expected near-term rates to be anchored and longer-term rates to be pressured higher. Uh, Since that time, short-term rates are basically unchanged, but longer-term rates have risen by more than 25 basis points. So first, great call. Uh, Secondly, what's behind the steepening? Well, uh, two primary reasons. Um, One being Fed policy, and the second uh, being an improved economic outlook. So first, with respect to Fed policy, uh, you know, under the Fed's new uh, flexible average inflation targeting framework, which we've spoken about uh, about in past podcasts, uh, the market expectation is that the Fed's not going to raise rates anytime soon. Uh, and this has had the effect of keeping short-term rates well anchored. Uh, in fact, as you pointed out, um, you know, since the start of the year, the yield on the two-year Treasury is unchanged through today. Hmm. But as we move uh, out further the yield curve, uh, Treasury yields are up anywhere between 31 and 56 basis points across five to 30-year maturities. Uh, and stronger economic growth projections is the primary reason uh, for the higher rates. You look at the consensus forecast for uh, 2021 real GDP growth, it's up a full percentage point from last month. Uh, yeah, I think as, last month you were saying it was like 3.8%, right? Yeah, actually, um, mo- the most recent has it at uh, 5.6% <laughs> on a okay. fourth quarter over fourth quarter basis. And, um, you know, falling COVID cases, um, progress with vaccinations, and the uh, potential for a a fifth stimulus package out of Washington have all improved the outlook for growth. Uh, and, and with the improved out, outlook for growth also comes higher inflation expectations, another uh, driver of, of treasury rates. Okay, well, inflation expectations uh, are getting a lot of attention these days. Um, there's a healthy debate between reflation and deflation. Uh, rising commodity prices and still weak labor markets, tight housing market and excess capacity in the rental market. So uh, what are AAM's views on inflation and what are the indicators you're looking at closely? Well, we're still not overly concerned about inflation uh, because we still feel that uh, excess global supply uh, and slack in economies uh, should keep inflation from moving significantly higher. Uh, having said that, we, we do think inflation uh, could move above 2% in the near term, but that's largely due to low base effects. 
uh, we think inflation or headline inflation will most likely settle back in around 2% by year end. As far as what we look at, uh, first, market implied inflation expectations, and they have risen recently. Uh, for example, the uh, 10-year tips break-even is up 21 basis points since the start of the year. Uh, signs that inflation pressures could be building at the producer level or uh, within surveys. Uh, in fact, the ISM manufacturing survey for February, which was released yesterday, showed that the prices paid component hit a 10-year high. Uh, and that's most likely due to supply disruption. Mm. Okay. Um, and finally, and finally, you know, we, we do think inflation at the end of the day is a monetary phenomenon. Uh, too much money chasing too few goods would lead to higher inflation. You know, so we'll keep an eye on the money supply and that has been rising. Uh, but equally important, the velocity of money, which, which kind of measures the rate at which money is changing hands, uh, which has fallen. So if we start to see an increase in the velocity of money, that could in indicate an increase in demand uh, and increase the risk for uh, for higher inflation. Okay. So so is that uh, lack of velocity, is that just because people are sitting on the money and don't have places to spend it with the economic lockdown? Large bank reserves uh, is just not making its way into the hands of uh, businesses and consumers. Okay. All right, so um, let's close out this portion of the podcast with uh, the latest views on the jobs market. Uh, the Fed policy right now is so focused on labor rather than inflation. Uh, what's the latest data revealing to you? Well, on Friday, we'll get the February employment report. And the consensus among economists is that the U.S. economy produced 195,000 new jobs for the month. Uh, with the unemployment rate holding steady at 6.3%. Um, the good news with respect to the labor market is that new filings of unemployment claims uh, continue to trend lower as the economy reopens. And we should see jobs come back in industries like retail and, and hospitality. Uh, we think the unemployment rate will continue to trend lower this year uh, but remain above 5%. Okay. Well, thanks for your thoughts on that, Marco. Um, what do you say we switch seats here and, and you can ask questions, okay? Sounds great. So a big area of focus for uh, President Biden and, and the new administration is climate change. And you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast the president's decision to rejoin the uh, Paris Agreement. What, what does that mean for the U.S.? Right. So, like you said, the U.S. officially rejoined the Paris Agreement last, well, middle of February, February 19th. Uh, this is consistent with his strategy, uh, his campaign promises. Um, in fact, he signed an executive order to rejoin the agreement within the first couple hours of taking office. So what this means is they're will continue to be efforts to control climate change, and that will be a policy objective throughout his term. Uh, secondly, we think it means U.S. support, or there will be policy support to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, particularly emissions 
uh, from carbon dioxide and methane. And among the biggest emitters of these gases are the energy sector, the electric utility sector, and the agricultural sector. So uh, we think there will be policy support for renewable energy and carbon sequestration. Um, one last uh, item on this topic, though, is that there's already many of the companies uh, that we follow are already Im implementing policies uh, in accordance with the Paris Agreement due to other government policies and, and shareholder demands and ESG objectives. What, what are some of the ways that companies can reduce uh, their carbon emissions? Sure. So uh, I think the easiest and simplest way right now is to purchase renewable electricity. That's something that many energy companies are, are doing uh, and are getting more aggressive. Uh, they're also attempting to employ better technology to keep methane emissions lower at the wellhead and throughout the pipeline system. Um, they're entering into more renewable diesel uh, agreements, which is it's a process where the refiner adds hydrogen uh, in the refining process to reduce emissions. So those are probably the easiest and um, most near-term uh, exercises that they can do to reduce emissions. But I think something that's getting a lot of attention in the energy space right now is green hydrogen, and that's to displace diesel fuel for long-haul transportation. This is a longer-term technology that's still in the very early innings of being widely deployed. It basically uses electricity from renewable sources like wind and solar, enters that electricity into a system known as an electrolyzer, combines it with water, and then it separates the hydrogen from the oxygen. It then uses um, this purified hydrogen to manufacture fuel cells, which can be used in uh, electric vehicles. So this is an exciting technology because it's carbon-free and the vehicles have no emissions. Let, let's, uh, let's follow up on that hydrogen. Uh, point you, you just made uh, because there's uh, there's definitely been an increased focus um, from the markets on hydrogen stocks mm -hmm. uh, and, and the use of, of green hydrogen. D do you think green hydrogen is achievable and, and what's the cost? Sure. Um, well, like I said, it's still in the early innings. Uh, before we get to green hydrogen, there's going to be other uh, applications of uh, dirtier hydrogen. But this, this green hydrogen that uses renewable electricity is still in the early stages. We need a much larger rollout of solar and wind farms to generate the emission-free electricity. Uh, we need much, much greater electrolyzer capacity. That's a technology I talked about that separates the hydrogen from the oxygen. Um, we need a whole new pipeline transportation uh, system throughout the U.S. or, or vastly improved technology of the natural gas pipeline system for safety reasons. There's huge um, a huge storage issue to overcome and we need to get a better understanding of how much water is consumed in this process. So those are some of the uh, technical obstacles that we have to overcome, uh, but perhaps the most important is, is the cost. And we estimate that it's probably at least a $4 trillion uh, endeavor 
just to replace diesel fuel with this green hydrogen. And outside of the U.S., it's probably triple that. So uh, you ask, is it achievable? I think it is achievable. I don't know if um, I don't know if there's enough uh, policy support at this stage to make it truly feasible. I think longer term, maybe we can get to a 50% penetration rate. If we get there, Pat, what what does that mean for oil consumption going forward? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's one of the areas that we've tried to spend a lot of time on because it's been so um, emphasized here over the past six months, this use of green hydrogen. But the way we look at it is we think oil consumption is likely to still grow throughout this decade, throughout uh, till sometime in 2030. If you look at the items that come out of crude oil, that being gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and chemical feedstocks, we think that gasoline consumption will probably peak sometime around 2026. We think diesel consumption will probably peak sometime around 2027. We don't think jet fuel will be affected by this electrification of the economy. Uh, and we actually think that petrochemical feedstocks will grow. So uh, we think there will be a subsequent to 2030, there will be a, a de- slow decline in crude oil consumption. Final question. Uh, as you know, at AAM, we, we believe that the uh, that the integration of environmental, social, and governance issues, or, or simply ESG, uh, will play a bigger role in the investment process. Um, how does how does green energy tie in with ESG efforts by companies? Sure, uh, you're right. There's been a big emphasis on ESG, and that's increased significantly over the past year. Uh, fund flows in ESG mandates have risen dramatically, and energy companies don't want to be excluded from that those capital flows any longer. So there will increasingly be efforts made by these energy companies to reduce carbon emissions so they get access to that ESG capital. But one thing that I think investors should be aware of is that there's been this um, notion out there that ESG companies have... Uh, outperformed their non-ESG counterparts for some type of, uh, call it a sustainability premium. And I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, If you look at who or what companies make up these ESG ETFs, uh, it's largely technology companies. And those companies benefited greatly from the economic shutdown during the COVID crisis. And um, I think that led to their outperformance, not anything related to uh, ESG-type mandates. And I think that's being borne out if you look at um, the performance of energy ETFs since the rollout of the vaccines in November. Those energy ETFs now are are outperforming their sustainable counterparts by upwards of 50% in the past four months. So... um, Yes, energy companies will continue to uh, 
uh, will continue to reduce emissions to be more ESG compliant, but I don't think that will lead to any type of outperformance of the class or for the energy sector in particular. Okay, thanks, Pat. Well, Marco, I think that's that's all the time we have today. Thanks for your thoughts on the economy and for the questions on the energy transition. And thanks to you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you have any questions, please reach out to your portfolio manager or our marketing team at aamcompany.com. During our next podcast, I'll be joined by Marco and a member of our investment team to discuss a timely issue affecting the fixed income markets. Thank you.